Hier komen wij in vreemd. My name is Rose Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We record this podcast on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're a revolutionary socialist podcast and we talk about politics, history and activism and theory and we hope that we're building up a collection of episodes now, I think we're on episode 27, um, that will help people arm themselves with the politics the theory, the history lessons and so on that um, we will all need in this coming period as this crisis that we're seeing around the world and in Australia um, continues to unfold. And we really hope that people who enjoy this podcast um, help us share the episodes that we're coming out with, particularly at the moment, when we want to make sure that um, a revolutionary socialist perspective is being shared and discussed um, through the crisis. So, even just sharing this episode, if you're listening to it and you enjoy it, or previous episodes really helps us um, reach new people. And also we have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast where we really appreciate uh, your donations um, that uh, any amount basically will help us to continue making the podcast and doing the kind of activism and organizing that you hear about um, on this show. So, we're recording this podcast on the afternoon of Saturday, the 4th of April, Melbourne time. Our guest is in Western Australia, in Perth. Um, so we're just acknowledging the fact that things may have changed in the situation um, by the time you listen to this, if you're listening to this a bit later on. Um, things are changing very rapidly. So uh, that's just our little caveat in case we say something and say, oh, well, that's not true anymore. Now suddenly... There are elections in Hungary or whatever, probably not. <laughs> um, so the guest that we have today and the topic that we're talking about today I think is a really important one and it's about how the far right and right-wingers in generally are already, in general, are already responding to this crisis and what we might be facing in terms of the organising of the far right um, internationally and in Australia. And the guest that we have, um, who I'm very pleased to welcome onto the show, is Vashti Fox. Vashti, um, you will have probably read in Red Flag, if you're a Red Flag reader, or in Marxist Left Review. She also has a book coming out, The Story of Palestine, Empire, Repression and Resistance, which will be launching in a few weeks' time. Uh, and people will find that in the Red Flag bookstore, which you can find through the Red Flag website where there's heaps of titles already up there and quite a lot of books that you'll find hard to reach in other places. So, if you're mm -hmm. looking for reading at this time and it's a good thing to do, um, then Red Flag Books is a good place to look. Vashti is also working on a PhD which is relevant to this particular topic about anti-fascism in Australia from the 1970s until today uh, and she's doing that in Perth where she's based and she's been an active anti-fascist um, for a long time and one of the founding members of the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism here in Melbourne. So, Vashti, thanks for coming on the show. Um, let's start with 
sort of the initial response of the far right when the virus first broke out, people were starting to talk about COVID-19 coronavirus and what the far right did in response to that. And sort of who did they blame? I guess one of the things that's come up a bit is they're pointing the finger at, at certain groups. Um, and what were the, their initial reactions? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose as um, you indicated at the start, the situation is shifting extremely rapidly um, and the kind of positions that a bunch of the far-right groups and uh, political organisations and indeed governments across the world took initially uh, have changed. Um, but nonetheless, at the beginning, and here I think it is important just to make some distinction between the far-right uh, the lunar far right, the far right um, fascist white supremacist uh, um, grouplets, uh, the kind of individuals, lone wolves, people who are, who populate the kind of extreme edges of the um, alt right online, um, to make a bit of a distinction between those sorts of groups uh, and then the far right governments and political parties, um, and especially those that are in power, but. Uh, a number of things kind of united all of those different sections of the far right. And initially it was to um, blame China. Uh, and I think the, um, a, a whole series of the um, uh, sections of the far right uh, provided uh, conspiracy theories which were then taken up by uh, figures in bourgeois electoral politics um, and then the fact that figures in bourgeois electoral politics um, provide a much more global and high-profile platform for these sorts of narratives then feed back and give um, more legitimacy to the um, anti-Chinese, uh, I suppose, positions of the, um, of the kind of the lunar far-right grouplets. Um, so we'll probably get to a series of um, the discussions about the conspiracy theories, but, um, you know, just the mere fact that Trump called it a Chinese virus just over and over and over and over again, uh, the fact that um, the uh, far right, you know, has de developed and, and uh, online has a whole series of uh, so-called scientific justifications for um for this being a Chinese virus, like um, Marine Le Pen, for instance, in France, uh, has said on a number of occasions uh, that she does not think, and this is kind of dog whistle politics, but she does not think that it's crazy to say that the virus was developed in a lab um, by a particular nation. Um, and then over 40% of national rally members believe that the virus was developed by the Chinese in order to undermine Western civilization. So is that the same in Australia? Because I know people list, mostly listen to this show from Australia. So the far right in Australia basically followed along as far as I could see with that kind of international kind of conspiracy theories and pointing at China. Yeah, the Australian far right definitively took up that narrative. Uh, Anti-Chinese racism in Australia has a very long history, uh, both in mainstream political discourse and then more particularly uh, amongst the Australian far right. Uh, in more recent times, the um, anti-Asian racism that um, really ratcheted up in the 1990s 
uh, was taken up with extreme intensity by the far right um, in Australia. And so there's sort of a, a muscle memory associated with far right anti-Chinese racism in this country. Um, and so as soon as the uh, virus started to develop and spread, a whole lot of the kind of online um, groups, figures like Blair Cottrell, who is um, infamous for um, appearing on Fox News, Triple J, uh, a whole range of um, other outlets um, as an explicit Nazi. Uh, he um, has been campaigning online around the fact that this is a, a Chinese virus, again, intended to bring down um, the West. Um, I suppose associated with that, there is also, um, you know, Pauline Hanson figures uh, who are a bit more in the kind of political mainstream, um, but still part of the far right, who, again, have a long history of anti-Chinese racism, who uh, has been campaigning essentially uh, to end all um, ties with China on, on the basis of this um, she has a conspiracy theory about the fact that the United Nations is controlled by the Chinese um, and therefore, uh, you know, is part of this kind of global threat um, to so-called, you know, Western democracy um, and so on. So that's kind of dominated a lot of the, the rhetoric of the far right uh, initially. Mm -hmm. um, but now there's kind of a whole series of kind of other elements to the uh, response, which includes, uh, you know, hostility to science, uh, you know, the sorts of arguments about, um, you know, white, the uh, white Australian population being particularly hard done by out of this hostility to refugees, um, arguments that really the Australian government should have always had very tight borders and should never have let people in in the first place, hostility to refugees, uh, a whole series of the narratives which existed prior to the coronavirus are now mm. um, being mm. intensified and being given a new a new framing. Mm. Yeah, and, I mean, people can hear all of this or have been reading about it and think, well, you know, that's sort of crazy and um, who's going to believe it or whatever. But actually th there's some real um, – you know, real-world consequences to this already. It's not just kind of the future of racism and nationalism. That And it's not really reported in the mainstream media in terms of racist attacks on people in the street in Australia right now that are happening, you know, anti-Asian racism. That's very underreported, underrecorded, but at least from people I know, and I'm sure people you know, um, that people have been you know, attacked in the street, shouted at, um, spat on, these kind of things, uh, graffiti on in people's roads where they live and stuff like that is happening. So it's not just a, like a wacky conspiracy theory type thing. It's actually, you know, it has this effect on people's lives. Mm. There's been, um, as you say, it's been underreported, but it's also, if you look through history, whenever you have uh, governments putting out, you know, these kind of racist dog whistles, it, it leads to a spike in these sorts of uh, racist violence as well. And it was just yesterday uh, that Scott Morrison made what I think is probably his most racist intervention into this whole crisis so far, when he said that uh, international students who can't fend for themselves here won't get a cent uh, from the Australian government and that they should leave the country, 
you know, not, like he might not have included the F-bomb in there, but it's, we know that phrase. You know, the far right have said for a long time, uh, you know, fuck off, we're full, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's essentially what Scott Morrison's press release was yesterday. Uh, so it's, mm. and, you know, like I said, historically, these moments, those mo- moments when things like that happen almost lead inevitably to an uptake, you know, an increase in, in street violence as well. Yeah. So we have, um, you know, the conspiracy theories go as far as um, sort of really uh, pushing home the consistent kind of um, racism of the far right, as uh, which includes conspiracy theories around uh, George Soros being the people being the person who's funding Bill Gates, who's funding the Chinese to build this. Um, virus in a lab and all of that kind of stuff. So it, it's not a surprise in many ways that they choose to um, reinforce and use this moment to um, perpetuate those kind of racist, anti-Semitic, um, anti-Chinese racism and so on and in their existing narratives. Um, so that's clearly, that's clearly, clearly an element of this, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I was just so, going to say, I think the other – element to the conspiracy theories and in particular around George Soros and Bill Gates to some degree is there's the anti-Semitism which um, stands in for, uh, especially with figures like George Soros, hostility to a, a liberal establishment which they claim is for progressiveness, uh, multiculturalism, uh, all of the, in their, in their worldview, ills of society. Um, but also the kind of it allows them the space to reflect and relate to the kind of um, sense of disaffection that exists amongst poor people, um, people who are frustrated at the genuine um, problems of the rich and poor in society, and to sort of trade on that hostility to of of a sort of middling layer in society to the people above and also to the left and um, to the the ideas of of the people so called below so i think that play, that's a long standing tradition amongst the far right um, and i think in, in particular that the kind of anti-semitism particularly plays that role and so there's a lot of the conspiracy theories have um, an element to them, which isn't just racism, but which is also about not trusting the elites in society, mm. not trusting yeah, yeah. the liberal establishment, not, you know, why, why should we trust them? Mm. We know what they've done for years and decades and, um, and so yeah. on, which I think, yeah, can make, can give it a bit of a broader appeal to, um, people who aren't just looking for a, a racist explanation of the world. Yeah. That idea that the, you know, the, um, Establishment, which is always the term that is used on the right, is going to abandon us, abandon us yet again. And sort of, there's a degree of truth in all of that, obviously, because there's a class dimension to it, which is real for people and people's experiences of this crisis. And you know, the frustration of the difference of you know having to read in mainstream media publications, even in Australia, but you know, like the New York Times and the Fairfax media or whatever here, people saying, oh, you know, it's really hard to not be able to go to my holiday house Mm. or what books are you reading during Mm. the shutdown and all those kind of things that Mm. when people are like really worried about their own health, when they're in America in particular thinking about the fact they don't have health insurance and and once they 
know that they have this virus, they're basically going to be left on their own and it's just really luck if you survive or not because no one's going to look after you. Then a lot of that anti-establishment stuff does have a real material basis to it. Our the other thing I just wanted to throw in in terms of their initial response was the denialist part of it. But that's not necessarily just a right-wing thing, right? Because sort of heaps of governments around the world just basically at the beginning said, oh, well, don't worry about it. Um, but really Trump was the figure who sort of most um, denied at the beginning. And again, I think in American terms, like the fact that their whole healthcare system has been degraded um, over decades means that denialism is an obvious first option in a lot of ways because if you admit that this is going to be something that affects millions of people in America, then people will be very concerned and rightly so. So that denialist thing um, was important in the beginning and then sort of flipped over into now. Now we say it's real because you can't really deny it. Who we're going to blame? Let's blame the Chinese and call it the Chinese virus and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that's tied in with, you know, other mainstream um, responses as well. But, yeah, I think people will look back at this the last couple of weeks and the, and the months that um, Trump had to prepare, for example, and Scott Morrison had, where they knew the risks that were approaching and did nothing because it was much easier um, to deny that this was actually going to be as much of a crisis as it is turning into and obviously was to anyone who did look at the evidence. Yeah, and I think the, it's not just about denial is easier. I think the denial on the part of lots of governments, and this is both far right uh, and more um, social democratic governments, uh, is that it follows the logic of capitalism. It's important, you know, it was important for them to kind of just say, uh, well, you know, it's business as usual. We don't want to disrupt profit making to the degree that we can. We just want to keep the machinery of capitalism going. Uh, you know, people going to work, schools staying open, uh, you know, childcare centers staying open, uh, you know, public transport running, the whole um, logic of putting profits in front of and above the needs and um, health of the massive working people across the world has, you know, is, is the, I think, the main reason why this kind of denialist uh, ideological uh, covering got, um, got going in the first place. Um, but then, you know, the fact that I think some of the most prominent figures who were associated with the denialism initially and still are from the far right um, has meant that there is a um, there's sort of an international agreement to some degree, or initially was uh, um, that this was how the, um, in particular, the far right leaders should play this crisis. Mm -hmm. So you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil um, continues to just say that this is just a little flu, it's a trifling cold. Um, there's sort of a an attitude which is you know, if you're going to be such a sissy. If you're going to be a, um, you know, not a real uh, strong person to be able to deal with this 
um, so-called cold, then you're just pathetic. Uh, you know, that, that sort of rhetoric is um, he's holding fast to. Um, in Australia, um, you know, there's been, uh, you know, figures like Pauline Hanson and indeed now um, Andrew Bolt is saying um, a lot of the um, distancing measures are kind of over the top. Um, why can't we just have society go back to normal? Um, there's a slew of kind of right-wing publications and personalities that are kind of, um, you know, basically arguing that all of this was, uh, you know, just um, an invention and, you know, that, that so much of it is over the top, uh, you know, all sort of associated with um, this whole argument, I think, that um, the economy is the, the main thing. Yeah, and that was um, in the episode with Rick Coon that we did. He, he raised the um, U.S. congressman who basically said, "I think people would be happy for old people to die if it saved the economy." So that, yeah, that whole business as usual economy comes first, and it does fit with all of the um, ethno nationalism and the um, gendered, like macho, misogynist politics of the far right to say, well, you, you know, we can, we can tough it out. We're tough white men or whatever. Um, and if people can't, then, yeah, they're just being a bit pathetic about it. And Trump is still talking. He hasn't gone back on his the churches will be full on Easter Sunday line either, which suggests that they're ready, you know, that they're, they're desperate basically to um, uh, restart the economy as, even if it kills tens of thousands more people. And I think some of the stuff about, um, you know, the estimates of number of numbers of people that might die, it, there's a benefit to it potentially being able to say that less people died than the numbers we originally said, as if this is some kind of success, um, mm. even though still hundreds of thousands of people die. So there's lots of different kind of political angles to it. But in places where now... Um, and in America, but internationally, where now it's impossible to deny the impact of the, vi of the virus um, uh, as a health crisis. There's been this turn towards authoritarianism. So if we look at, um, you know, if you've watched videos of what's been happening in India to people being brutally uh, forced to leave the cities or forced to go back um, to their sort of rural origins and all of that kind of stuff, but they're crammed onto buses, being um, beaten by people. Um, and in parts of Eastern Europe too, similar thing of people just being attacked for going out on the street. I mean, it's the same in Italy where the police have been on the streets basically ready to chase people back into their homes. And now in Australia, people could be fined up to $20,000 just for being out without of whatever a reasonable excuse is, even though everyone's confused about what we are supposed to or not supposed to be doing. So can we talk a bit more about that kind of authoritarianism in some of those places internationally as well from the right? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, this is where sort of seeing a spectrum of governmental response. So in the countries where the far right has been in power, uh, in lots of the countries in Europe, even where the far right is holding uh, more positions in government um, than, you know, they were a decade or two ago, um, the response has been 
uh, more on the extreme edge of the authoritarianism, but it is not uh, only those regimes and countries where the far right is in power, um, where many of these authoritarian responses have existed. So, um, you know, but we're talking on the, the far right end of the spectrum. So in Hungary, for instance, the Prime Minister um, Viktor Orban has basically suspended democracy, so he can now rule by dictatorial decree for an indefinite period. Uh, in Poland, legislators are attempting to push through laws that stop doctors from criticising the performance of the healthcare system at all. In Serbia, um, soldiers are currently patrolling the streets as part of this coronavirus response plan. In uh, the Philippines, Duterte uh, has basically declared uh, whole zones of uh, the country, particularly where um, more um, the poor, poorest sections of the population live, as being under complete uh, dictatorial lockdown. Um, and he's said that if anyone goes out of the house, they can just be shot. Um, and again, this is one rule for the poor and one for the wealthy uh, because there's a, a, a quite a well-known case recently of a, um, a, a middle-class um, man uh, breaking the curfew and, um, you know, the, there's a campaign to kind of stop him from being prosecuted. Meanwhile, um, the people in the ghettos and slums are being um, shot on site. So, yeah, I think here we've kind of got a a, um, a spectrum mm. of authoritarian crackdown. Um, and again, I think we sort of have to make something of a distinction between the importance of the necessary social distancing measures and then the ways that they are enforced. And then, you know, maybe we can go on to talk about, um, you know, the fact that what will happen after the immediacy of the coronavirus crisis has um, diminished, uh, you know, what we, can, what we might be able to expect um, in terms mm -hmm. of the authoritarianism. I mean, the other element in, in um, the developing world is the fact that social distancing in poor areas is virtually impossible when the amount of people who live in very close quarters, if you live in a, in a slum kind of conditions in India, for example, how are you supposed to have everyone be one and a half metres away from each other at all times and then find food and then have water and all of the basic necessities of life? So where police are patrolling the streets and telling people to socially distance, that's not it doesn't actually have the health effects that we could have in Australia from doing social distancing where it's actually physically possible for a lot of people to do that. But in these places, it's just really forcing people back into their homes or their neighbourhoods in communities where they actually can't social distance. So mm -hmm. it's just going to mean that whole areas, poor areas in these countries will just all be infected and then, you know, just it's just a sort of nightmare to think about what that what that's going to look like uh, in the coming And they coming can't week. even survive. They, they're not yeah, even no. going to be able to survive. And so in a so whole range of places, mm, they can't even get food. Die the virus, yeah, they'll just mm. die of starvation or dehydration, like, yeah. Yeah, the um that dynamic uh, that you mentioned about the, you know, the difference between say you know the way that people in the slums are treated versus the middle class people in places like the Philippines. I think it's it's right to say that that's a spectrum. And when you look at even the and on one level, it can seem kind of trite to compare 
the situation of being shot on site to what's happening in Victoria, for example. But but that class dynamic is still very evident in both Sydney and in Melbourne. Uh, the, a huge chunk of the cases of, in the outbreaks in both those cities can be traced back to particular rich people. You know, rich people who got off the cruise ship in Sydney, or in the case of Melbourne, even more extreme. That rich couple or the rich group who went for a skiing trip in Aspen, Colorado, came back to Melbourne, knew they'd been exposed to the virus and refused to go into isolation and just traipsed all over town spreading the virus. None of these people have been harassed by the cops. None of them have been fined by the cops. All of the fines, all of the harassment is has been, uh, uh, you know, sort of unleashed upon working class areas. You know, there was an article in, this, in the paper here yesterday about a guy who was fined $1,000 for eating a kebab in the park. You know, $1,000. So, it, that sort of class dynamic is playing out uh, even, you know, even without the prospect of being shot in the street. And where there have been many of those aggressive policing responses uh, in, the, in the developing world, um, and as Ros kind of described, many of the um, people who live in these slum areas can't get out to eat, um, to survive, or if they um, do leave, it's because they need to work in order to get money to kind of survive, um, then the authoritarian response has um, meant that when there have been protests and riots, which are a completely understandable and necessary response to the situation, the government has um, either rushed through laws um, or just has had licence to um, shoot people. So I think part of the difficulty of, of what we're facing is I think socialists need to make a distinction between the measures which we support um, and then the uh, ways in which the government is enforcing and policing those measures and mm -hmm. the way that and we need to oppose the way that they're enforcing and policing the social distancing measures which are, are necessary. And in fact, the kind of aggressive police and state response to these measures would not be necessary if the state was providing food to everyone mm -hmm. at home. It, you know, there's a huge contradiction in Australia between the fact that the government is saying go to work for a lot of people, um, you know, in groups of 15, 20, 100, 150, 200 people, but in your personal life you can only stand next to one other person and we'll prosecute you for that. So that's pretty mixed messaging that it's understandable people are finding hard to navigate. Um so I think we need to oppose the the strict authoritarian and legal measures um, that are a response um, to that. And then also I think, you know, it, it legitimises and normalises a level of police presence. And I think that's where the far right comes in because many of these measures um, of increasing social lockdown and control, uh, limitations over people's movement over and, and hostility and um, racism towards certain populations are all part of the far right's playbook and something that they've been wanting to enact for decades. And now they have a perfect ideological justification and something that they can try and gather popular momentum around. Mm. And I think... Um there's an article that's just come out in Red Flag by Tom Bramble on that question of the fact that the authoritarianism is also about shifting the blame onto ordinary people. And probably, you know, if the far right can pick up some case studies of ordinary people who happen to be migrants or refugees or people who are not white in Australia, being the ones who are going around in groups or, you know, you can imagine 
very soon, uh, African groups of African young people who are gathering together. It's their fault that, you know, your grandma is dying, all of that kind of stuff that's absolutely backed up um, by the by all of the governments, including Dan Andrews' Labor government, but everywhere, that it's a way of saying don't blame the politicians, blame each other, and then the far right can say, well, not just each other, but people who are not real Australians or people who don't understand our, you know, cultural values or whatever the crap they say. So they can skew what, you know, the government are giving the far right a gift basically to say, well, you can use this to to whip up more and more racism. Yeah, there was a case in Melbourne, I think, of a Lebanese wedding which went ahead, um, you know, just on the eve of some of the more strict social distancing measures and that's been taken up by the far right um, across the country as evidence of uh, the problems of Muslim immigration, of uh, a display of um, the fact that uh, Muslims being inside of the country are um, dangerous to white people's health, uh, you know, is just being used as part of a whole kind of pre-existing anti-Muslim narrative. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Mm. If we finish by thinking about some of the implications then as we go forward into the crisis and the, the sort of medium and longer term implications um, of this for the far right and the mainstream right. Obviously, you know, nationalism has been a central framework of, of responses of mainstream politicians all around the world, whether they're centre-right, centre-left or wherever. Um, so that's obviously something that's going to continue um, and the far right can obviously ha- have a more extreme version of that nationalism that is comes out of the mainstream, comes out of the centre actually. So as socialists and as left-wingers, like how do we respond and what, what can we do to prepare ourselves for some of those implications? And what do you think are some of the most important of those? Holy moly, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it's important to look at some of the history of how the far right has grown out of crises historically. I think it's important to look at the relationship between the mainstream and the marginal um, far right, the fact that um, we've already seen quite um, prior to the crisis quite a significant uptick in uh, far-right vigilante violence. Um, I think in a situation of social chaos, of breakdown, uh, that the uh, sort of response of the far-right to um, this sort of chaos is with violence, increased vigilante attacks on um, particular migrant groups. Uh, You know, the fact that in the United States there's been a rush on gun sales uh, you know, is a particularly terrifying, uh, I think, indicator in this situation. Uh, and so I think, you know, in, in response, uh, you know, uh, uh, to the crisis, I think we will see an uptick in um, far-right violence. Uh, how and, and I think the fact that the mainstream legitimates a lot of that rhetoric that is associated with that violence is important to kind of 
um, understand that in challenging the mainstream, we're challenging the far right and in challenging the rhetoric of the far right, we also need to challenge the mainstream. I think that's part of what we need to do. Partly also, I think we just need to build up uh, where we can uh, the networks of social solidarity that uh, what the far right trades on is the sense of dislocation, is the sense of bitterness, anger, resentment. And rather than turning all of that towards the people that it should be turned to, the ruling class, uh, they turn it internally uh, towards, um, you know, uh, LGBTI communities, towards uh, migrant communities and so on. So to the degree that we can building up solidarity movements between, uh, you know, refugees and uh, the rest of the Australian population, anti-racist movements, uh, where we can encouraging um, in whatever way we can um, strikes, resistance and building the revolutionary left out of that. I think what's really encouraging at the moment and this podcast and Red Flag newspaper is talking a lot about it is the various spot fires of resistance and social struggle which are occurring uh, across um, the world. And in particular, when you look at the um, nurses, for instance, who are taking um, some protest action in New York at the moment, the thing that really strikes you is the multiracial nature of that workforce. Uh, the people who are interviewed from the Dominican Republic, from Puerto Rico, from, uh, you, you know, from the Middle East, uh, you know, right across the world, that's the na- that's the nature of the modern uh, working class, and I think the degree to which uh, the the working class across the world can respond um, with collectivity and solidarity, uh, and and make prominent the fact that this is across all national borders, and we're not responding with nationalism and, and racism. We're responding with um, social so- solidarity. I think that's the the best that we can do. Mm. Mm. And it is really, yeah, the conditions in terms of the far rights, um, what conditions the far right thrives in when people are in isolation, when they're on their own, when they're, you know, not, uh, especially when they're thrown out of work, so you don't even have the collectivity of being in a workplace, is really when you can see people turning particularly to online sources of far right propaganda and thinking, oh, maybe this is the thing and I'm going to, you know, turn my anger against all the wrong people from our perspective but it's definitely it's definitely a real concern and mm. i think the mitigating thing against that as well as the people who are just already organizing things collectively and workers resisting is the fact that this is an international crisis so socialism as kind of an internationalist um political approach as an inter- as an internationalist movement has a real opportunity to make those arguments as well about the fact that this virus knows no borders, the fact that the response, um, and we've talked about it here as well, is very much a class-based response that is um, that also knows no borders, that the people who will suffer the most um, through this are the poor and the working class around the world, and that our interests, and when we look at what we could be doing if we were making decisions, you know, like the workers who are, happy not to make cars but want to make ventilators instead, all of those kind of things that you can see um, offer a way forward and, and socialist ideas and Marxist politics uh, is a way for people to kind of put that together in their heads and in their activities. And so 
you know, we do what we can and we uh, put out this podcast and we appreciate people's support in listening to it um, to start to spread those ideas. So you're listening to this, please share this podcast around. Uh, please subscribe to Red Flag newspaper and donate whatever you can um, and continue listening and also get involved in some of the discussion groups that you'll see advertised through the Red Flag mm. Socialist Alternative Facebook page. If you're new to politics, now is the time. Or if you're thinking, actually, now socialism seems more important than ever, you're right. And now is the time to just jump into one of those things. Ask the questions that you have. Talk to people who've been trying to work out the world in this way for a little while. And, you know, it's, it's you and me and, you know, the international collective working class who actually can um, make – this crisis, um, I think Aaron Dutty Roy's just written something where she says this crisis could be a portal to a different kind of world. And I think as socialists, that's a, a good way of thinking about it. Um, we Rashi, should change the so logo. We should change the logo to spread the ideas, spread the socialist ideas, not the virus. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I think that one's. <laughs> Spread solidarity, not the virus. Spread the union, not the virus. That's good. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, great mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, any final thoughts or words? No, I mean, I, I fully endorse the general call <laughs> that we're in an extremely um, new and important period of world history, I think the likes of which we basically have never seen. Uh, the absolutely precipitous uh, drop-off in the global economy is going to have ramifications for millions upon millions of people in ways that are much more dramatic even than the Great Depression. Um, and the way that this is going to play out from here, I think, depends on the intervention of all of us. Um, and so now is not the time to sit on the sidelines to see how things will play out. This is There's going to be no returning to normal after the virus has um, initially been contained. And so, you know, what is absolutely needed now is the development of the forces and um, the collection of individuals who can, everyone can play a role in trying to transform you know, what is absolutely become clear that we're just living in, in an absolutely barbarous capitalist society. So, yeah, 100%. Mm. Everyone should get on board. Thanks, Fashti. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>